Welcome to the SCD-Specific Carbohydrate Diet Podcast. If something has been eating at you or eating at your gut, then I have good news for you. The Specific Carbohydrate Diet, also known as the SCD, has helped countless people with a wide variety of health issues improve their quality of life. It's also a great way to eat if you just want to go grain-free or stay away from processed foods. Here, you'll find interviews with SCD experts as well as everyday people who actively follow the program, and you'll get tips to help you enjoy living the SCD, including resources, recipes, and more. I'm your host, Lee Bernstein. I live with gut issues. I live with autoimmune issues. And after trying many nutrition protocols, I found that the SCD is what works for me. If that's the same for you, or if you're looking to find out if it is, then let's enjoy living SCD together. I'm not an expert. I'm not a doctor. Nothing on this show is ever medical advice. I'm just someone who's thankful that the specific carbohydrate diet works. I'm thankful that it's given me my life back, and I'm especially thankful and excited about being here with you today. So if you're ready, let's begin. Welcome to Episode 2 of the SCD-Specific Carbohydrate Diet Podcast. Thanks for being here today. First, I want to thank those who would listen to Episode 1. It featured Jeffrey Berger, founder and executive director of the Specific Carbohydrate Diet Association. If you've yet to listen to that show, I hope you take the time to do so. It, there's a lot of information there about the Specific Carbohydrate Diet, how it works, what it is. It'll give you a nice anchor for the information that's going to be presented in the show today. On the show, Jeffrey talked a little bit about SCD Rocks, which is the annual conference sponsored by the SCD Association. I just wanted to follow up to let you know, I've been bopping around their website, and I saw that this year, with the world being the way it is, the SCD Rocks Conference is going to be virtual instead of in person, and they're offering it free for anyone who wants to attend. Now, in the past couple of years, there's been a charge to attend. They always make it very reasonable, but there is a charge. I attended it in the past. I went in 2018. The information I received was invaluable. I still refer to my notes all the time. If you or someone you love follows the SED, I hope that you'll be there too. It's going to be on Saturday, October 17th, 2020, of course, from 12 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Time. According to their website, there's going to be lots of news about what's going on in the community. And this is really cool. Even though it's virtual, you're going to have the opportunity to connect to others who follow the specific carbohydrate diet. Or if you're the parent of a child who is following the SCD, you'll be able to connect to other parents. If you go to specificcarbohydratedietassociation.org, and I'll put that in the show notes, that's their webpage. You click on the support tab at the top and the drop-down menu will show a link to SCD Rocks. If you click on that, it's going to take you to a page where you can sign up for the conference. I'll put that in the show notes as well. So it looks like they want to make sure we all sign up and not just show up. They'll need to know how many people to plan on. So I'm very excited to share that with you it, it, for, for a couple of reasons, actually. One, because I can't wait to go, and I hope you'll be there too, but also because 
Today's guest is going to be a speaker at SCD Rocks, and it's going to give you a great understanding of the caliber of the people that they bring on to speak at the conference. I'm very excited to have Dr. Christine Bowen on the show today. Dr. Bowen is a naturopathic doctor. She's an author and an international speaker. She's been practicing in Bothell, Washington since 2007. She's a Northwest native who graduated from Bastyr University in 2005. She specializes in restoring digestive function, mainly through dietary change, making her a perfect fit for this show. In addition to being the founder and medical director of Bothell Natural Health, she's also the founder and chief medical officer of a holistic nonprofit organization, Inside Health Institute, and we'll talk a little bit about that today on the show. Now, you're probably going to want to grab a pen and paper as you listen today. As you'll see, the interview is really rich with information on how you might better your health. And Dr. Bowen is very open. She's a very approachable professional with a great sense of understanding. So what I decided to do was to make the show two parts, today's interview, and then I'm going to invite you to ask questions of Dr. Bowen. And in the next show, we're going to feature your questions. I'll talk about how to submit your questions at the end of the show. But for now, know that all questions will be read anonymously and that your contact information will be held in the strictest confidence. I hope you're as excited as I am. Let's get started. Welcome, Dr. Bowen, to the show. It's so wonderful to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me, Lee. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Well, let's begin with you. Tell me a little bit about how you got started on SCD. What's your history there? Well, I had many, many years of digestive misery and then randomly received an email from a patient asking me if I had heard of this diet. I was really surprised that there was a diet that I hadn't heard of because I had tried all of them. (laughs) So I dug into it, but I dug into it only to be able to help my patients. So I learned SCD. I read Breaking the Vicious Cycle. And then within three days of trying it for myself, again, only to learn how to help patients, I was symptom-free for the first time in my adult life. What symptoms were you having? Uh, Bowel urgency, frequency, uh, diarrhea, abdominal cramping, uh, anxiety, fatigue. I had felt pretty miserable from the time that I was about 16 or 17 to 33 years old. Wow. So... It's funny how it's funny how life works, isn't it? I don't know. Um, sometimes coincidences aren't coincidences. Things happen where they're just supposed to. So you had you were having all kinds of issues. Yeah, I had the diagnosis of IBS, and you know the pat on the head, and maybe you should reduce uh, stress in your life uh, from the physicians. Clean colonoscopies. Nothing very clearly that was wrong that anybody could help me with. Um, just, I mean, there weren't a lot of answers at that time. I had tried, you know, any allergy elimination diet, fiber, probiotics, enzymes. And so I had just given up on being helpable. And I really thought that I was broken and that I was just going to be broken. So looking back, in addition to IBS, what would you say it was that you were suffering from? 
It's interesting now that I can, you know, I have the frame of reference after being in practice for this long that I can look back at some of my records and I see that there were positive inflammatory markers. And so I had positive fecal lactoferrin and then also something called eosinophil protein X. And explain for our listeners what... uh what those tests are. And what yeah. So when you t- when you get a stool test, there are a lot of different things that can be tested for. And the two major inflammatory markers that are tested for in the stool are calprotectin and lactoferrin. Lactoferrin is not as commonly tested for as calprotectin. And then there's this other one that's kind of off the beaten path inflammatory marker called eosinophil protein X. And so that's something that can tell us that there is high activity of something called eosinophils, which are the white blood cells associated with typically allergy, but then also present when there's inflammation. And so when I look back at some of those tests, I'm like, hmm, kind of looks a little bit like baby IBD. All right. So in other words, you were on maybe on the cusp of um, colitis or Crohn's disease. It, it definitely looked like something that I would now think of as being a borderline IBD. Do you think if you had not gone on the specific carbohydrate diet that your body would have pushed over that and you would have ended up with it? Definitely. And so bare minimum, I had leaky gut. I had a joint pain. The joint pain was actually one of the early symptoms that I had associated with my IBS. And so when we look at inflammatory bowel disease and extra, extra intestinal manifestations, extra intestinal manifestations are oftentimes things like arthritis that's showing up in the joints that happens for patients who have inflammatory bowel disease. So that was one of my early symptoms. When I was about 20, I went to a rheumatologist and they just said, no, you don't have rheumatoid arthritis, you know, but that was, it was- Did they test for osteo, for osteoarthritis? Did they see that or? They just were like, you're young and healthy. So why are you here? So go away, you know? So that was basically, you know, we can do a little bit of testing. You know, I've come to learn later on that I also have Hashimoto's and potentially mixed connective tissue disease, which are other types of autoimmune diseases. And so there, there's a whole clinical picture that has uh, played itself out or, you know, has revealed itself throughout the years, but it did all start with my gut. And that went, that went south quickly when I was a teenager. Okay, so we're going to go back now to those three days that you put yourself on the SCD, just, just just to help a patient, just to figure yeah, it out. Yeah. So take up from where you le- left off there. What happened then? Yeah, so basically the three days, it just happened to be three days that I was following the diet. I was following the full diet. I didn't start at intro because I didn't see any need to start at intro. I wasn't doing it for myself, remember? I was doing it for other people. Um, so within three days, I had the first formed bowel movement in my adult life. And it was so shocking that I took a picture. It was, <laughs> <laughs> it was the first perfect poop that I had witnessed in so, so many years. And after urgency and cramping and nothing but, you know, explosive diarrhea every single day, I didn't think that my body knew how to make a formed bowel movement. So it was shocking. It was shocking and fabulous. Meet your new best friend. Yeah, it was amazing. (laughs) And so SED became my life at that point personally, but then also I was really convinced professionally that this was a tool that was not widely available that really needed to be. And then, of course, you continued. And just going back to the intro diet, as you would refer to, I, I, I could be wrong on this. I do believe that 
There's not necessarily an intro diet that's referred to in Breaking the Vicious Cycle, but on the website Pecan Bread, yeah. which for those of you who are listening, I will put that in the in the show notes. It's Pecan Bread, P-E-C-A-N-B-R-E-A-D.com. She has a wonderful site where she actually does talk a little bit about an intro diet, especially to help children with autism. Am, yes. I, and I, am I right on that one? Yes, but then there also was um, a description of a more simplistic uh, starting point for SCD for some people within Breaking the Vicious Cycle. And okay. So that was the piece that it wasn't the stages. So when you look at um, how SCD has developed or the interpretation of SCD by different practitioners throughout the years, the stages are definitely a new thing. And that wasn't something that I was aware of when I first started on SED. But it was like, do you start with the most simplistic uh, approach and then gradually introduce foods? Or do you just start with a full expanded diet? You know, do you modify the texture of your food or not? And so I just went like, give me a list, do this, don't do that. And I had never eliminated grains. And so that was one of the major things that was different for me. And that was really an aha moment for myself. Like, why did those allergy elimination diets not work? Mm -hmm. uh, because all of them had grains in them. And, uh, you know, why are these other diets or treatments not working for other people that I'm trying to help? So I was a GI expert at that time, newly graduated GI expert, right? Thinking that this was going to be my world and my life, but I, I secretly knew that I couldn't be helped. I was positive that I could not be helped, wow. but I still felt motivated to help others. And you just continued with the diet and you found that you continued to get better? And yes, yeah. So three years, about three years of fairly strict SCD, and I lost 30 pounds, fixed my thyroid, my anxiety went away, um, my hair grew back, it was really wispy, what we call thyroid wow. hair, it all grew back, and I just became a healthier, happier human being. And then, you know, I started experimenting with loosening things up a little bit after that, and then, you know, throughout the years, there have been some modifications, but I returned to the core of SCD. Uh, as especially the grain-free and no refined sugar um, piece that continues to keep me well to this day. That is wonderful. And how many years now altogether have you Ooh, been following it? 12 years. And so, wow. I, yeah, I would say t three years strictly and the rest of the time with modifications and then other, uh, other changes along the way and combined it with different types of diets or approaches and other treatments throughout the, throughout the path, but 12 years. And now you are a naturopath. Mm -hmm. Tell us, please, all about what that is and what it means, and also what people need to watch out for with people that do call themselves a naturopath. What are the credentials that you have? And you, I'm sure you know where I'm going with this. Yes, absolutely. So a naturopath is more of a... It's more of a nickname for my profession. So naturopathic doctors are who we are. Some people call us naturopaths. I call myself a naturopath. It, it really is, um, you know, potato, potato in our profession. About 50% say naturopathic doctor, 50% say naturopathic doctor. It's all right. Um, so naturopathic doctors go to a four-year accredited college, and it's a doctorate program. And so in that doctorate program, 
we do all of the ologies, I call them the, the ologies, the microbiology and biochemistry and anatomy and physiology and all of those core science programs. But then in addition to that, we also study things like herbal medicine, diet and nutrient therapy, counseling, homeopathy. So a lot of times people think we're homeopaths. Homeopathy is just one tool that a naturopathic doctor might use, but it's not our profession. And so um, we have all of that additional training and all of those holistic treatments really built into our program. Uh, we may or may not have residencies. There are, I believe there are five accredited colleges in the United States for naturopathic doctor degrees or naturopathic medicine degrees. And then there are people who call themselves naturopaths who are not necessarily people who have attended those schools or gotten um, the accreditation or this, not attended the accredited schools and they don't sit for a board exam like we do. Um, so they might call themselves naturopaths, but they might have only attended like a nine-month online program. So we really like to differentiate. So that's where people will make sure that they say, I am a naturopathic doctor, not just a naturopath. But I don't mind the nickname at all. And, uh, you know, people have affectionately called me the, the SED naturopath, and I'll take it. I'll take it. As long as you <laughs> I like know. That. That's, as long, that's pretty. That's a, that's a very prestigious title, actually. As long as you know that I have the degree and that I did the work and that I am a doctor. I have heard that there are people that have gone to the nine-month certification program that are also holding themselves out to be doctors. Is that true? So they aren't, but then is it actually something where they are held accountable for practicing without a medical license? I think that when it comes to, so naturopathic doctors are licensed, I believe, in 33 states right now. Um, I'll definitely recheck that, but I think it's 33 states that we have licensure in. So when it comes to states that are not licensed, it's a little bit like the Wild West and people are allowed to call themselves whatever um, without being held accountable for practicing without a license. So it happens, but I don't think that it's good. I, I don't think that people should misrepresent themselves as doctors without having actually attended a medical school. So if someone is looking to see uh, a doctor, and they are also a naturopath. What questions should someone ask to mm. make sure that they're getting the highest credentials in another person? Wonderful. So which school did you go to? Is it an accredited college for naturopathic medicine? What are your credentials? So typically we're an ND, uh, an ND, or an NMD. And those are the those are the credentials that you would be looking for instead of just somebody saying, I'm Dr. Larry, or, you know, I'm a, I'm a naturopath, you know, it's like, what, where did you go to school? Give me your credentials, you know, and, and, you know, making sure that they really have that true licensure. Not Good to, to know. Yeah, not to say that naturopaths couldn't be helpful in diet and lifestyle or something like that. They do have some training. But I just would not think that you're seeing a doctor if you're not actually seeing a doctor. It's more like a coach at that point than I would consider that. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So uh, the, specific, the specific carbohydrate diet, is that something that a majority of naturopaths follow or use or, or suggest that their patients use? This is, an, this is a fabulous question. And so a lot of people do assume that because I'm a naturopathic doctor or any of my colleagues are naturopathic doctors, that we must all be uh, very well versed in diet therapy, specifically this one. But 
no. I would say that they're few and far between. So there are a few of my colleagues that I can say are well-versed in the specific carbohydrate diet. But as far as my education, we didn't even talk about the specific carbohydrate diet. I didn't hear about it until two years or three years after I graduated. Mm -hmm. So it was not something that we talked about in our curriculum at all. And there was one conference that I went to where somebody mentioned it and they said, well, but that's too hard. So we don't recommend that. So that what, was... <laughs> what, did, what did they mean by... Like it's too hard to follow? Yeah, it was just a, it was a GI conference for naturopathic doctors and they just said it's, it's too difficult. That's it. And so there was a naturopathic doctor who was a GI expert who was telling us all about management of Crohn's and colitis, but said it was too difficult. And so that must have been in, you know, 2006 or 2007 that I heard that and that I was kind of like, huh, what is this thing? But it didn't really register with me. So there are very few of us who do as, well, I would say also very few of us who do as much dietary therapy as I do in my practice. People will integrate it into other treatments. But for me, it's about 80% of my practice. Wow. Wow, and just so just so all of you know, Dr. Bowen does have a free 15-minute consultation available on her website, which I will make sure I also put in the show notes, and we'll talk about it some more before we're done. But for any of you who have any questions or just want to know if there's something that she might be able to do or answer for you that might help you, she is available. And I have to add that the way that I found Dr. Bowen was... Judy Herod, Elaine Gottschall's daughter. Now, of course, Elaine Gottschall is the author of the book that started the whole thing, Breaking the Vicious Cycle. Judy Herod referred Dr. Bowen to me as someone who would be a great interview. So those of you who have any questions for Dr. Bowen, 15 minutes is a pretty generous amount of time to be able to call and just feel her out and, and see what she might have to say. So I just wanted to interject that. Can I say real quick that um, my license is in Washington State. So I am licensed as a doctor and primary care physician in Washington State. When it comes to helping people outside of Washington State, I'm a little bit more limited in what I can do. I can't do, you know, I can't use my full scope of practice. But I can behave a little bit more like a, a second opinion. So if you have a complex case and you need some eyes on that case, then definitely that's something that I can help with. Or it might look a little bit more like a health, health coach. Okay. But very good. Just to say that. Mm -hmm. Very good. Full disclosure. Yes. And the, all the cases that you've had with people that have had to or you recommended follow the specific carbohydrate diet. Were they easy? Were they hard? Was there a mixture? Can you talk about yes. some of those and and yeah. the, the good, the bad, and the ugly, as they yeah, say? Yeah, the mixture, the mixture for sure. Because there are what I call low-hanging fruit cases where it's like, like mine, where I had been suffering. It's not, you know the degree of suffering that will determine the outcome. So I had been suffering a lot for many, many years, three days, and I had a normal poop. So I see a lot of those cases, and typically those are people with IBS. And so IBS tends to be a bit quicker to resolve. When it comes to inflammatory bowel disease, it depends on the severity. It depends on you know how long somebody's been at it. Do they have surgeries? Do they have food allergies? And so some of those things will de determine how complex a case is. Um, but it really, 
all over the place. I would say that they're of of all the people that I put on SCD, at least 80% respond very positively. And then there's the 20% that we continue to chip away at. And so we have a lot of additional tools that we may use, some of them outside of strict SCD, to be able to help those patients. Things like bowel rest or low-dose naltrexone. There are a lot of other treatments that we can um that we can consider if people are having a tough case or food allergy testing, if we think that all of the permitted foods are things that people are reacting to. It happens. So really a wide variety of responses, but there are a lot of those satisfying, you know, three days to a week turnaround. And I typically have people follow it for two weeks before we check in and decide what's next. It's important for people to know that if you're following SCD, there certainly are other things that might be needed and that, that that can be used. There are a lot of people that do take medication along with following the program. There are a lot that don't. Uh, so that's nice that you're able to guide them in what they might need for their specific body because everyone's different. Yes. Everybody's different. Uh, what are some of the other side benefits that you found with people or yourself from yeah. following the diet? Yeah, so as I talked about fixing my thyroid, anxiety gone overnight. I was quite a nervous person. and what Describe <laughs> what anxiety was like for you. You know, people hear that word anxiety, yes. and it just can conjure up so many different definitions. Yeah. What did it look like in your life? It was fairly acute. So daily, I mean, I didn't, I didn't present in the ER with panic attacks necessarily, but it was a lot of... Um, perseveration or like continuing to cycle thoughts, worried thoughts over and over. Like, um, like a rumination? Rumination, exactly. Thing? Like a, a, you know, death of loved ones. Uh, am I going to be hit uh, by another car on the freeway? It was, it was like every day was ruled by worry. Um, I even went so far as, you know, my, my new boyfriend, um, who didn't call me at the time that he was supposed to, I was convinced he was dead on the side of the highway. Like oh. I, and so I called him like, you, you gotta call me, please call me back. And I was really, he, he talks about it now and he's like, you were a really worried person. And, <laughs> and I didn't necessarily see myself as being so, but as soon as the anxiety was lifted, it was like night and day. I didn't feel like I had the constant worried thoughts plaguing me. So it was like my, you know, there was peace where there had not been peace for many, many years prior. Peace of mind. Yeah, just no noise, no chatter, no worry. It just was like, you know, what is, is. And it wasn't, panicked about what was happening the next day. Do you have you ever found that people with attention deficit disorder might also need something like the specific carbohydrate diet? Yes. And so again, everyone's different. You know, yeah, not, yeah, yeah. Not, when we talk about side benefits, there have been people who have um, come to my office just for things like anxiety or even bipolar, people who had diagnoses of things like bipolar, and we realized that it was more like blood sugar instability or malabsorption that was creating those symptoms. And as soon as they did, you know, a couple of weeks of SCD, I've had people with a lifetime of mood diagnoses feel 100% better, 100% better, where they were feeling feeling like a different person, like they were questioning everything that came prior after just two weeks of SCD. The people that had been misdiagnosed with, say, um, bipolar, mm -hmm. 
Were they able to go off of their medications without having mood swings? Thankfully, the people were not necessarily on medications for bipolar, but it was just an existing diagnosis. And, you know, this is not a not permission to go and change your meds without talking to people or to think that every case of bipolar should be questioned. But I just think that the dietary element, so diet is not going to conflict with your medications. So this is something that you can typically safely do in addition to the treatments that you're on. But it it really was, it was like night and day for some of these folks. I had a little, uh, little patient who was having night terrors and she had these horrible, you know, death and fire sort of dreams. And she'd wake up screaming since she was two. I saw her at nine and within a week of doing SCD, she was free of night terrors that had been plaguing her. And then she, um, she ended up having a Girl Scout sleepaway camp night and uh, she had a cupcake and she melted down and was screaming in the middle of this group of girls and was, you know, trying to lash out and hurt people. And after she came out of that episode, she was like, Mommy, I I don't want to I don't want to eat cupcakes anymore. Wow. Like she was she was convinced. And so it really when we look at some of those behavioral disorders, is it something like a food allergy? Is it something like malabsorption? Is it something like blood sugar swings? And so I do also see a normalization of blood sugar. Even in patients who are type type 2 diabetic where they're taking medications for it and even with honey and even with some of the squash and fruit and things like that on board, I still see pulling out the grains can really help with people's blood sugar. Wow. Wow. So I'm thinking about this nine-year-old child that said, I don't want to eat cupcakes anymore. And then I'm thinking about the doctor that you saw in 2006, 2007, get up at a, at a microphone in front of a group of people saying, I'm not going to suggest following the SCD. Yeah, it's hard. Because it's too hard. Mm-hmm. It, it would have been too hard for that little girl to not yeah. follow it. When her parents came with her to her visits, I mean, obviously she was nine, but both parents came and both parents had chronic health conditions. Dad had congestive heart failure. Mom, both of them were fairly obese and had all of their health problems of their own. They decided that they would dedicate themselves to following this diet with their daughter. And so when they came back in a month, they had all, like both of the parents had lost weight, but the daughter had grown. So a lot of people worry that SCD is not adequate nutrition for children, but uh, she grew like a foot in a month. It was crazy. And every time I saw her, she kept on getting stronger and taller. And it was just amazing. And here was this child the first time I saw her dark circles under her eyes. She just, she was not, she was not very communicative. She didn't want to talk about the night terrors. You could tell that she really was very terrified by the things happening. And she just seemed like a shell of a child. And I just watched her open up like this amazing flower and just grow and become a beautiful young woman. And it's like, and then mom and dad's health is improving with it. So Doing SED as a family, I find, is the best when when people are trying to help children along the way. Yeah, and not only does it make it easier because everyone's eating the same way, but children learn by example. If they see their parents doing it, they're going to be more prone to do it as well. And they don't want to be left out. Kids don't want to be different. They don't want to be left out. They don't want to have to sit there and watch you eat something that they can't have. Like, that's just yes. cruel. That's That's mean. Why is it that people sometimes feel, not just with children, but with anyone, that the SCD is not adequate nutrition? 
It's interesting. A lot of it comes from, you know, registered dietitians or from, I would say, like the standard medical advice on nutrition. We're talking RDAs, like the recommended daily allowances of foods or of uh, nutrients, rather. And uh, people don't believe that you can have a complete diet without the grains. They think the grains are so full of these specific nutrients that you cannot get other places. But it's not true at all. And so, you know, everybody eating any diet is not going to get adequate vitamin D. (laughs) We just can't get that much vitamin D from our diets. So that might, that's the same as with any other diet. But then when, when it comes to things like B vitamins that we get from grains, you can get them from a ton of other things. You don't have to have fortified cereal to be able to get these nutrients. You just have to have a really well-balanced SCD diet. How did people survive before breakfast cereal, right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, people it's survived like, for a long time. <laughs> yeah, so it's like, look at your greens, look at your nuts and seeds, and you'll see, If I feel like oftentimes the diet that people are consuming on SED is much more nutrient-dense than a standard American diet or even like a hypoallergenic diet. You have to make sure that you're focusing on fruits and vegetables and, you know, other really nutrient-dense foods, the nuts and seeds, if you can handle them, legumes, and not just have meat. It's not a carnivore diet. You have to make sure that you have those richly colored foods, so eating the rainbow as much as possible, even if you have to puree the rainbow, uh, eat the rainbow uh, when you're on SED to be able to really get that diversity of nutrients in your diet. Very good. Uh, I I have received letters from a few people that have type 2 diabetes, and you had mentioned that mm-hmm. when you were talking. For those that you have helped that have type 2 diabetes, and again, I just want to remind everyone, none of this is prescribing. This is all, you know, always talk to your doctor, and everybody is different, everybody and everybody. So this doesn't mean that it's a one-size-fits-all thing. But what about neuropathy? The neuropathy that's associated with type 2 diabetes, or with anything for that matter, yeah. um, fibromyalgia comes to mind. We might want to talk a little about that too. Mm. But for, for those with diabetes and and neuralgia and uh, neuropathy, what have you what have you seen? So with neuropathy, the thing that that I pay attention to is how long has it been there? If it's been there a long time, that damage might not be reversible. Um, with almost any symptom, if it's been there continuously 24-7 for ages, then maybe that damage is done. But if it's something that's intermittent, so if somebody has intermittent neuropathy that's better or worse, depending on how well their blood sugar is controlled, then that's neuropathy that definitely can change. So if if it's stuck, then it means that the damage may be done. But um, controlling the blood sugar is key to helping to prevent or potentially help the neuropathy. So, you know, not just okay control. So the medical, the medical institution accepts fairly poorly managed blood sugar as being fine. They call it a 7% hemoglobin A1C, fine. But that, that blood sugar average is enough to still continue to create inflammation and disease in microvessels in our body. So including the eyes, the kidneys, the toes, any of those tiny little vessels are gonna be more prone to damage the higher the blood sugar is. So we really want it not just okay or acceptably controlled, we want it 
really optimally controlled to be able to allow the body to reverse some of these inflammatory changes if possible. What is fibromyalgia? What causes it? That's a great question. So I think that it can be a lot of things. And sadly, for people with fibromyalgia, I think that all of them are aware that basically fibromyalgia has become what we call a trash can diagnosis, where, you know, that's a medical term. So it doesn't mean that you're in the trash can. It just means that basically they don't and, know and what it doesn't. It doesn't mean that it's not real. Yes, exactly. It, it definitely means it's real. It's, it's a real, real thing. Yes. People have it. Yes. yes. And so I would say it's various things. Typically in my practice, I find that it's very commonly associated with things like leaky gut. So any level of irritation or inflammation in your intestine can create something called leaky gut that basically is altering the the immune system of the intestine, which then allows things to penetrate that intestinal lining, get into the bloodstream. So then when you have global body pain or body pain all over your body, your joints, your muscles, then it definitely can be associated with leaky gut. Another thing that I find commonly as one of the underlying factors for fibromyalgia is Epstein-Barr virus. And so viral conditions definitely can be another one of those things can be associated. You look in the literature and it's not supported. All I know- Explain explain what Epstein-Barr is. Yeah, so Epstein-Barr virus is one of the viruses that causes mono. The other one is cytomegalovirus. Those are the most common ones. Typically, if somebody is um, if somebody has mono, like a new mono infection, we always hear of it as the kissing disease. Somebody got it in college. So Epstein-Barr virus can continue to persist in your system uh, for life. So it basically can be dormant and not give you any troubles, or it can come out and it can uh, it can replicate. This virus can replicate. It has high affinity for places like our liver. It lives in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord um, when it's like dormant. But then sometimes things like a car accident, surgery, sometimes even like a chiropractic adjustment. I've seen people flare or go into something. It's like, do you, what did you do to disturb the EBV? Then it can come back out and start replicating again. And so we call that a reactivation or like a chronic EBV infection. And so if you're getting testing, you don't want just one single test for EBV. You want at least four of the tests to be able to see if you have a pattern that is uh, consistent with chronically reactivated EBV. Some people will have positive tests and no symptoms. Some people will have negative tests and all of the symptoms. And so you just have to be working with somebody who is savvy or has experience in this realm to be able to help you find your way back to balance. But typically EBV uh, is one of the underlying causes. Um, in my in my clinical experience, again, the research is not necessarily going to support this, but this is something that I find to be a major piece that is left out of the fibromyalgia uh, testing and then also treating it. We treat it like it's a viral infection. Uh, that you treat the uh, Epstein-Barr. Yes. The fibromyalgia. Yeah. Treat the Epstein-Barr the same as a viral infection, yes. and it can be a precursor to um, mono. No, it can oh. be a precursor to, you said, to uh, fibromyalgia. Oh, fibromyalgia. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it, or it could be a contributor. A so, contributor to yeah. it. Okay. So I definitely find that then people will have a lot of those viral symptoms. So when we look at cases of fibromyalgia, there's body pain, but oftentimes people will have sore throats and lymph node enlargement and other things like uh, fever and chills, uh, fatigue, 
And so it will look just like the symptoms of a monovirus infection, but here it's happening, you know, 20 years after you had mono. So then is it a chronically reactivated mono at that time? Very interesting. Yeah. So there's hope for people that have been told they have fibromyalgia and they don't know if there's anything they can do. There's hope for everybody. You know, I feel like there's something that can be done for every single person who comes through the door or through the virtual telemedicine door in this world. But um, there's hope for somebody, for everybody, even if it's something, uh, some little tidbit that helps them to gain a different perspective on their chronic disease, even if it's something like a little bit of nutrient guidance, even if it's something like just feeling listened to. There's hope for everybody, whatever your chronic condition is. And that I just think that fibromyalgia, the people with fibromyalgia, I feel so terrible for because I feel like the medical system just really kicks them around. As does other people, as do other people. Mm-hmm. You know, um, when you said just having someone to listen to, mm. wow, is that ever the truth? Uh, you go through day to day to day in chronic pain. You look fine. Yes. You, you know, people will look at you and they think, oh, it's all in your head. Mm. Or your family doesn't understand why you can't go out and throw at the basketball hoop the way everybody else can. It's very difficult really difficult for so many people. So having that ear and that understanding is important. And hope. Hope is very strong medicine. Very strong. Hope and laughter. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. (laughs) How does someone know if they have, what is leaky gut and how does someone know if they have it? That's a great question. So oftentimes people who have some sort of bowel condition, whether it's IBS or IBD or SIBO or something like that, they they probably have something like leaky gut. The symptoms can be, you know, developing other autoimmune diseases, um, can be things like wandering joint pain, um, brain fog, uh, malabsorption or malnutrition, uh, low amounts of vitamins or minerals in the blood. Um, But then how do you know if you do have it? So, okay, you have all the symptoms of it, but how do you know if you have it? So a stool test that tests for zonulin, which is one of the proteins that helps to stick those intestinal cells together, that is that protein that is eroded when people have leaky gut. So then you can see a stool zonulin level and that can help you to to diagnose yourself or have somebody else diagnose you with uh, leaky gut syndrome. Um, people that are noticing a change in their bowels, mm-hmm. a lot of times that it can be a signal of leaky gut. And I know from speaking to you before, and I just have to mention this because you said that you took a picture of your poop yes. when you had that, that fabulous first the perfect normal- poop. Yeah. <laughs> You're also very open to people talking about their bowel movements, like in great detail, yes. and even sending photographs to you. That happens, yes. right? Yeah, I never predicted that uh, going into medicine, I would be getting a lot of uh, photographs of people's bowel movements emailed to me. But um, it is something that happens on a very regular basis, and so it's something that if people can't describe it, or if they think there's something weird in there, or is this blood? You know, these are some good questions, or you know, people. Should showing the photos to me during the session. 
So it's something that I have gotten used to, but it is because sometimes people have a hard time describing it or they can't tell and they're very worried about what is this content? Is that a worm? You know, or is this a piece of undigested food? And so, it, you know, the picture, they say a picture is worth a thousand words, right? <laughs> and so it's like, um, that's a situation where a picture may be something that you want to take. Not every doctor is going to want to see your pictures, though. Um, but it is something that can be a valuable tool for me seeing the bowel movement itself if somebody is having a hard time discerning what's going on with it. So leaky gut is food that's actually passing through that shouldn't be entering into your blood system. That, again, can cause autoimmune issues and a number of other things, and there is a way to test for it. So it can be partially digested food, toxins, bacterial particles, just about anything that is being broken down or existing in the lining of okay. the intestine. All right, then let's talk about bacterial overgrowth in the system, also known as SIBO, correct? Yes, small intestine bacterial overgrowth. But it's, yes. it's a misnomer because it's not just bacteria. It can be archaea or other organisms. So It can be what? It can be archaea or other organisms. It's what not is archaea? So they are a different type of organism that is not truly a bacteria. So they're just little they're just little buggers that like to drive you crazy. Other little buggers, exactly. Okay. So okay. keeping it keeping it simple and <laughs> understandable, <laughs> definitely. So basically what happens with SIBO is that you have some sort of dysfunction in your small intestine. It can be that there's there's this valve between the large intestine and the small intestine called the ileocecal valve. And sometimes that valve can be stuck in an open position that allows bacteria to creep back up from the large intestine to the small intestine. There are other reasons why there might be a dysfunction or problems in the small intestine, things like having had food poisoning in the past or gastroenteritis that can set the stage for the small intestine not working. And so the small intestine has this cleansing wave where it's cleaning itself out in between our meals. And so so when it's cleaning itself out, it's sweeping all of that food, broken down food, detritus and bugs, we'll just call them bugs, organisms down into the large intestine. The large intestine is where we expect to see more of those bacterial populations or more of those organisms naturally. But the small intestine, because it's constantly cleaning itself out, it doesn't have as many of those organisms present. So suddenly, if there's this problem with the small intestine cleaning itself out, or you have this backflow of organisms from the large intestine to the small intestine, then you can end up with a small intestine full of fermentation. So when we think of fermentation, we think of things like popping a beer bottle or a champagne bottle. Well, what happens? There's a lot of fizz. There's a lot of gas, right? So people uh -huh. who have small intestine bacterial overgrowth typically have tremendous bloating and gas and burping, and um, they might have headaches, they might have um, reflux. And so I always think, what does it feel like to have a you know 22 to 25 foot closed pocket of fermentation? What does that feel like to have that fermentation factory? And so if the if the fermentation is not going down, where is it going? It's going up. And so typically, well, people will have um, upper abdominal pain. Uh, gas and bloating, and it's the people who have such tremendous bloating where there's a tiny little person and you look at their gut and it's like, whoa, they really look nine months pregnant. And I've, I've heard so many people say that, men included. I yes. felt like I was having a baby. Yes. And so I definitely would test those people for small intestine bacterial overgrowth. And that's done through a breath test. 
Is that the hydrogen breath test? So it's a hydrogen or methane breath test. And pretty soon there will be a hydrogen sulfide breath test available as well, but only through one company that is, you know, definitely sitting on the technology. So um, the methane and hydrogen, I would test for both of them. I would use a three-hour lactulose breath test. And so, and that's a, that's a fairly easy test. Uh, actually, I know because I've had it. Hey, uh, and, and and did come back positive for uh, bacterial overgrowth. Yeah, through University of Chicago, which at the time was one of the only places and that that was doing edge. it. Cutting edge, that very there much people doing that at that time. Yeah, but it's an easy test. Mm -hmm. You just want to bring along a book. Yeah, because you're just breathing into a tube for the most part. It's a very very easy test. But it takes time. Yeah, three hours. The thing that I would I would say is the hardest for my patients is that you have to do a prep diet for 24 hours prior. If you've already been on a diet like the specific carbohydrate diet, a prep diet is not going to be any any trouble for you. But if somebody has never really altered their diet, then they might go kicking and screaming into that test prep. So... <laughs> <laughs> what do they what do you have to do or not do? Yeah, so basically you're not eating the foods that ferment for 24 hours. So it's actually about 12 hours during the day that you're not eating the foods that ferment. So you're denying those organisms their favorite foods and then you fast overnight and then you can drink nothing but water, not fizzy water, but just plain water before or during the test. And so people don't like to fast <laughs> and you have to be fasting <laughs> for the entire 3 hours, right? Um and then, yeah, basically what you're doing is you're denying the, the fermentable foods. And then at the beginning of the test, so you collect a baseline breath sample, which is, you know, you don't drink the solution yet. Then you drink the solution. And that is the, that's the organism's favorite food. And so you deny it its favorite food for the prior 24 hours. And then you give it its favorite food. Sugar. Yeah, so lactulose, which is also a <laughs> laxative. So know that it's a gentle laxative, but it just happens to be the organism's favorite food. And then the organisms gobble it up, and then they fart away, and they produce gas. <laughs> yeah. And then they produce the gas, and then the gas is absorbed into the bloodstream, and then we breathe it out. So that's why it's a breath test. Gotcha. Gotcha. That was a great explanation of that. I, I mean, even having gone through the test, I think I understand it better now than <laughs> I did then. All right, so now that leads me to one other thing that a lot of people talk about in conjunction with gut issues and everything else. And actually, Jeffrey Berger talked about it in the show before this one in our premiere um, episode. Let's talk about yeast. Mm. All right, is it candida, candida, candida? How do you I say Candida it? albicans or Candida glabrata or Dublinensis, whichever whichever one of the species it is. But I candida. have one doctor that insists Candida, and every time I hear that, I'm thinking that's never the way that I pronounced it. But. It's not the way that I pronounce it, but uh, yeah, who am I to say that that's the definitive way to to pronounce it? But I do say Candida instead. So Candida yeast overgrowth uh, certainly vaginal infections for women. Jeffrey Berger was very surprised to find out that he had a yeast infection in his gut because men don't think of themselves as getting yeast infections, but yet yes. they sure do. Yes. So what is the difference between that and leaky gut and bacterial overgrowth? And do they all play against each other? Do they play separately? Talk to me about yeast. Yeah, so they all can coexist absolutely. And so there's SIBO, as we talked about, so the small intestine bacterial overgrowth, but then there's also C 
CFO, which is small intestine fungal overgrowth. So you can have... Oh, 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 oh. So there's CFO. Yeah, there's another one too. So it the yeast can be just about anywhere. So it could be, you know, on your skin. We think of, you know, cradle cap for kids. You know, that's something that typically is a yeast. Um, you think of like a tinea, they call it Tinea uh, barbe, which is like a uh, yeast that's in the beard of men, or it can be in the groin. Um, it could be under the arms. But, you know, oftentimes when we talk about conventional medicine, they might just treat it topically like the yeast is only there. Typically, I feel like it is, it's already colonized our intestinal tract before it's showing up on the skin. The thing that I love the most to describe to people about the gut and the skin relationship is that when we're in development, we're little ball of cells, then we become a like an oblong ball of cells. And then part of the cells that are destined to be skin cells turn themselves inside and form the what we call primordial gut tube. So the intestines came from the skin. They were derived from the skin. So I think of the skin and the gut as being continuous but it just flips inside at our lip or it just flips inside at our bottoms, but that it's like a hollow tube. So I call it our inside skin and our outside skin, you know, being able to see that they're continuous. So when we see things crop up on the skin, whether it's eczema, dermatitis, psoriasis, whether it is cradle cap or other rashes or things like that, um, I normally ask myself how much of this is yeast. I don't, I don't normally question whether or not yeast might be a factor, but I typically wonder how much of this is yeast. And yeast being that the bad bacteria in your gut are now kind of overtaking so yeast a lot a of it. Fungus. And so a fungus has a different structure and it's a different type of organism. And so we think of fungus, we normally think of mushrooms, right? So that it's a different type of organism and it's a fungus. So yeast, like athlete's foot, oftentimes is yeast. And so uh, when we talk about yeast, that's a different type of organism. And when we talk about how it colonizes the intestine, so it grows little root systems that anchor itself into the wall of the, the lining of the intestine. And then it also grows little branches. And those little branches will butt off little babies. Those little babies continue to re-implant yeast in the, in the gut. So it's very tenacious. If somebody has something like thrush, thrush is typically yeast, but we don't expect to see thrush on somebody who's either not a baby or uh, somebody who doesn't have uh, some sort of immune suppression, like in HIV patients, thrush, oral thrush, or esophageal thrush can be very common, but we don't expect to see it in somebody who doesn't already have something that's weakening their system. So oftentimes it's yeast that we can't see. So things like gas and bloating, it would look the same. Things like uh, Things like uh, brain fog, it might look the same. Joint pain, it might look the same. So a lot of the leaky gut sy symptoms will also look the same as with yeast. With SIBO, I would say that typically SIBO will have more of the gas. But that being said, some people who have yeast also have a lot of gas and bloating. So we just have to tease these pieces apart. When we look at how they test for small intestine fungal overgrowth, that is difficult because oftentimes when you do a stool test, the yeast is already dead by the time it comes out. So you're not really able to easily pick it up unless it's in the large intestine. If it was in the small intestine, it had to traverse the entire small intestine and then down through the large intestine, so it's harder to pick up on stool tests. 
one of the things that I do is a yeast antibody test. And so this definitely is a hot debate. A lot of people don't rely on this uh, blood test to be able to see if yeast is creating an autoimmune type reaction in your body. And so is there yeast there? Maybe. Is there yeast there that then has triggered an autoimmune or an immune system attack against the yeast? That's what we're testing for in the blood tests. And so I do really like those blood tests. Um, it's an IgM, IgG, and IgA blood test. So IgA are gut-associated immune globulins. IgG is like sensitivity or you know delayed reaction um, immune system markers. And then IgM is like, whoa, it's an, it's an infection right now. <laughs> So IgM is like right now. So I typically will test those. And I've seen people with chronic health conditions not getting better. And we don't know what the underlying causes of their anemia or these other issues. And we find very high anti-candida antibodies in the bloodstream. And then that oftentimes will send us off in a yeast adventure, you know, really trying to help to eliminate yeast from the system. A and a lot of a lot of physicians are not really looking at that when when people come in with complaints. No, because I feel like it has to be something that they can see or culture and then you know are they even doing mycology or fungal cultures? Are they are they culturing the sinuses of somebody who has a si chronic sinusitis that has not responded to antibiotics? Maybe it even got worse with antibiotics. Something that got worse with antibiotics might have then eliminated all of the competitors, the healthy or positive bacterial competitors that were keeping yeast clamped down. So if you take an antibiotic for a sinus infection, it gets even worse. It could be fungal and you just allowed the fungus or the yeast to overgrow. Right. Antibiotics are can wreak havoc with, with your gut. And very often people that have been on a large, again, I can talk from my own mm -hmm. experience, that have been on a large amount of antibiotics for a long period of time. It's, it, would you agree that it, it would be surprising if that person didn't have any gut abnormalities? Yeah, I mean, typically we call it dysbiosis, which just means things are out of balance. And so right. some of the some of the organisms are a little bit more pathogenic or create a little bit more problems than other ones. And so when you take antibiotics, you might be indiscriminately killing good versus bad. Uh, that being said, there's a time and a place in life-saving measures, you know, for, for use of antibiotics. And so when it's a, appropriate, it's great. But I definitely think that we've seen that there's been a ton of overuse of antibiotics and that everybody got a Z-pack, if not two Z-packs, for every sinus infection or ear infection for about a 10-year period. And then when, when that stopped being a fad, then suddenly everybody was getting prednisone for every lung infection. <laughs> and so these are the sort of things that I think that we really need to have a very soft touch with and use only when they're appropriate instead of just indiscriminately using them across the board because they do have impact or fallout in the health of the system long term. The good news is that everything that you've described, everything we've talked about, a lot of people are finding and more and more people in the medical community are starting to open their eyes to the fact that the SCD diet or the specific carbohydrate diet, diet or the SCD, yeah. I always <laughs> want to put diet on the end. Yeah, of I always say that too, yeah. Can help. Yeah. It can help. It's, it's amazing and I feel like when we talk about things like yeast, 
a lot of the anti-candida diets will eliminate fruit and fruit juice and sugar, but they will still leave grains in place. And I'm like, what more, you know, exciting fuel do you want to continue giving the yeast? So pulling grains out when we're doing a yeast, an anti-candida diet is definitely part of the core treatment that I'm, that I'm doing. Other things like herbs or nutrients are things that will help to either, you know, bolster the healthy populations or help to kind of cull down the yeast. But I think of yeast like throw weed. Does anybody have that type of, that type of weed in your yard where you go to grab it and it zings out all of its seeds? Yeast has that sort of evolutionary uh, advantage in that when you try to kill it, I feel like then it's going to throw out its babies and re-implant a new population. So oftentimes yeast, po- uh, yeast treatments need to, need to happen over a, pe- a long, long period of like 3, 6, 9, 12 months, and that you can just gradually cull down the pathogenic populations, build up the healthy populations that help to keep yeast at bay. But yeah, it definitely can be a long-term treatment. So someone that you are uh, working with or even someone who's listening and is just starting out on the specific carbohydrate diet, just just trying to figure out their way, mm-hmm. what tips do you have for them? Help them out, Dr. Bowen. It, it, it can be realistically or unrealistically very overwhelming for people when they first start on this. Definitely. So I would say one, uh, healing can take time. So please be patient and keep on persisting. Um, If you hit a wall in your healing, then don't be afraid to ask for help or get deeper testing. You may have something like a food allergy or something that doesn't allow SCD to be as helpful as it could be. And it's, you know, it's just basics. Um, Also, things like getting baseline testing in the beginning. So I definitely think that if you have IBD to get fecal calprotectin, maybe even lactoferrin, if you can talk somebody into it, getting things like blood markers to check to see what your albumin is like or your iron is like. So complete blood count, comprehensive metabolic panel, inflammatory markers in the blood like high sensitivity C-reactive protein or erythrocyte sedimentation rate. Those sort of things can give you that baseline because maybe you do want to see more than just how your symptoms are changing over time. You want to see it in the numbers too. You want to see that calprotectin go from 2000 down to less than 51. You want to see you want to see that. And so I'd say that baseline blood testing will help you to see where your starting point is. Then you can measure your healing in other ways. If somebody's been on SCD for a while, definitely keep on digging into recipes. Don't fall into complacency of eating the same thing all the time because you will grow tired and that will lead you to cheat. And so you definitely want to, you know, keep your recipes fresh and keep on trying new things. I know one thing that I wish I had done, especially since my brain fog was so thick back in the beginning. I wish I had kept even it was even if it was just two or three sentences a day, I wish I had kept a, a journal mm-hmm. of how I was feeling, what I was eating, what was working, what wasn't. I look back on it now, especially now that I'm doing this podcast. How wonderful would it be to be able to remember that and be able to talk about it? And so even if it's something like a letter to yourself, so when patients are embarking on a, an intense journey, whatever it is, 
oftentimes I will advise them to write a letter to themselves about what their experience has been like up to that point, how they're feeling in that date. So even if it's something that you revisit in three months, six months, nine months, 12 months, you know, could you at least have that one baseline letter to self? This, you know, because oftentimes people will report that they're not doing any better. And then we go back to the notes that I happen to keep and it's like, oh, you're 65% better. But they don't feel it because it's coming so slowly and it still feels like, you know, that 35% is just so hugely magnified and it's so annoying that they're not at 100% yet. So sometimes you don't you don't see those subtle changes over time. Uh, you know, a lot of times too, especially on the boards that I'm on, uh, you'll see people say, wow, I felt so much better for the first month or the first couple of months. And now even though I haven't changed anything, I feel like, heck. I think that's yeast. You think it's yeast? Because I, I mean, it's my theory, so not science. It's just my theory. But I, I definitely, uh, I think of the life cycle. And so I'm thinking about those babies that are thrown out as the yeast is on its way out the door when you start the diet. Is that the same as die-off? So die-off would they be... they call die-off? Die-off would be the beginning. So I would think of it as being like a secondary die-off as the microbiome is continuing to shift and, and turn itself over. That I feel like that, that I do oftentimes see like a two-month, or three-month kind of random flare or bump in the road that normally people come back out of just by persisting, just, you know, doing the same plan, not deviating from it, but just taking note, you know, this is what happened, and then let's see how it goes from here. But I'm, I'm very suspicious about that being yeast. Interesting. But the important takeaway from that really is that it doesn't mean it's not working. Yes. It doesn't mean it's not working. There it are probably setbacks. means it is working. The yeah. darkest hour can be before the dawn, yeah. as they say. And what was that book, uh, Two Steps Forward, One Step Back? I feel like yes. most healing does happen like that. We expect healing to be this linear, you know, we have a starting point, we have an ending point, we reach total healing, and it, it's an easy path, and it's a straight path. Healing really is more like a jumble. And it's this crazy, like, I don't know which way I'm going at times sort of path. But you just keep on persisting. And like you said, to maybe take some notes and see, is it changing towards the positive over time? If it's not changing towards the positive all the time, then you definitely need more testing or other treatments. I am going to go over just a couple of minutes, and for those that didn't tune into the very beginning of the show, I just want to say that we are going to have a follow-up with Dr. Bowen, one that I'm sure everyone is going to be very excited about, because I want to have a show where it's just questions and answers from the listeners here. I've already collected a number of questions. You can go on to my Facebook page, this specific, the SED Specific Carbohydrate Diet on Facebook. You can ask me there. You can write to me. I'll put it all in the show notes. So we're going to have a whole show with you, doctor, on just questions, because I know people, and especially after listening to you today, you're just one of those people that other people fall in love with. Mm. And I'm sure that they will be very, very comfortable asking you questions. So we're going to do a whole show devoted to that. But before we do, just want to talk a little bit about some of the achievements that you have had. So people will have an even better idea of, of the wonderful person that we're talking to today. People may or may not be aware of it, but Seattle Children's Hospital has been quite wonderful in adapting the specific carbohydrate diet with the kids that they treat there. You had a voice, uh, with, with, with the hospital 
kind of in the beginning when they started putting all of this together. Is that right? It was amazing to be in that room. So it was a nutrition symposium and it was basically a who's who in the SED, SED world. And I was kind of like, why am I here? And it was, uh, you know, one of the parents of a patient of the team at Seattle Children's who made sure that I was in that room. And so I really am very grateful to her um, for helping me to be in that room. But um, it was interesting. Dr. Suskind uh, showed up as you know, being open and really wanting to hear from everybody in the room about what they're... Dr. Suskin being the the creator of Nimble Therapy, and he's the one that really started putting it all together for Seattle Children's, yes? Yes, yeah. Okay. And so he was the one who believed in diet therapy for gastroenterology, which is surprisingly not a standard held belief. So, uh, you know, for many, many years, there was the understanding that uh, diet had nothing to do with digestion. And all of us would disagree, of course, but that he was even open or that he had had enough people asking him about it. And then he was curious about it. And then he started pulling charts of patients who had been on the specific carbohydrate diet in the past and seeing, whoa, all of their test markers were getting better and better over time as they were on SED. And so then he published a paper that was a retrospective. Uh, showing those those patients and how they had uh, how they had continued to progress positively over time. So then it, that was intriguing. Hearing the stories from patients, hearing the stories in this room, I think that he was he was ready to come to this symposium and ask all of us, "How do I standardize this therapy, or do I standardize this therapy? Is this something that I should adopt?" And then also how. And so we all were really um, very vocal, and we had a wonderful SED meal. It was the first time that I had been to something how cool that was is that? yeah that was catered and was all SED. That was it was delicious. There were some flaky biscuits that still to this day. Uh, but, I, you know, I'm looking around and I was like a kid in a candy store looking and seeing like Ramon was there and Lucy was there and Erica, I believe Erica Kerwin was there and um, the woman, uh, Barbara from UMass Medical and um, who had done some research as well. They A lot of the people were showing us the research for the first time that had been done on SED and it was just, it was thrilling. So yes, that was, that was like a high point in my life. And, and it turned out to be a high point in many people's lives because of all of the good that I keep, I don't know if you've ever seen the musical Hamilton. Oh, not yet. Not yet. Oh, well, there's this one song and I can't sing. <laughs> but for those that have seen it, there's this one song in there that says, I want to be in the room where it happens, the room where it happens, the room where That's it happens. Right. You were in the room where it happens. That's now right. when you finally see that musical and they are streaming it on Disney. I know I saw. <laughs> when you see, and it's wonderful. When you see it, that's your song. Okay. That song comes on. <laughs> but it really was thrilling. You're going to have to remember. It was thrilling. Oh, I can't even imagine. So you have published in a global med medical journal on uh, SCD as well. And so my personal experience, a little bit about my professional experience, and then I also cited a couple of those uh, research articles that had come out of Seattle Children's at that time. Uh, because it's global, I really wanted more people. I want SED to be in front of more practitioners. And so this uh, this uh, publication is called The Towns and Letters. And so Towns and Letters is something that anybody around the world can get. You don't have to be any sort of practitioner, but typically it appeals to more holistic practitioners and from, you know, all walks of life. And uh, I just wanted SCD to be out there and to talk a little bit more about my experience and then, uh, you know, make the current literature more available to a wider audience. 
I want you also to tell us a little bit about the um, your medical director job and then the the not-for-profit work that you're doing. So when I got out of school, we didn't have residencies as a requirement. It was like you just graduate and hang up your shingle. Um, it took me a few years to kind of find out where I wanted to be and uh, started my clinic Bothell Natural Health in Bothell, Washington in 2007. And so that has been my my job. I'm basically owner and the lead physician there. I've had larger incarnations of that practice and smaller incarnations, and now it's just telemedicine only. Um, I have just one staff who is my support staff. We're a tiny little operation, but it's a you know a story of the little engine that could. We we uh, we accepted insurance in the beginning. Uh, we we started out in you know 2007 2008, and so in 2008 we all know what happened, and it became really hard for people to have disposable income to buy things like supplements. So it really did push the dietary uh, guidance aspect of my practice more and more. So that really helped me to dive into it. So being the medical director, I make all of the decisions associated with that practice. But then there were a lot of people who came to me who needed discounts, and I was not in a position to be able to afford to give people discounts. Um, so that led to the creation of Inside Health Institute, which is a not-for-profit. And so this is mainly for residents of Washington State, people who don't have the financial resources to afford holistic medicine or counseling. And um, it's been our pleasure. Um, now we've been in operation for five years, and it's been our pleasure to continue to grow and serve more people in need. And so, you know, anybody who's in Washington State that needs needs these type of services that cannot afford them, we are there to help. And so if people cannot afford even our nominal fee, then we have hardship cases where we accept a certain number of people per year for hardship. So that's, yeah, this Inside Health Institute is is my, my uh, I'm so proud. I'm It's my pride and joy. I love my private practice, but Inside Health Institute is how we really fill our hearts back up and we give back to the community. They say that if you want to get something done, ask a busy person. <laughs> you have like so much time in your life to do so many other things, not, and yet you're working on three books right now. Yes. And so... Uh, two, one is for practitioners and two are for going to be for patients and they're various different topics. And, you know, I'm hoping to get at least one of them across the finish line by next year. Um, so we'll, we'll see what happens, but um, I'll let you know first uh, when they're coming. We'll have to have you back on the show. I would love that. We have to, have to, have to. I love that. I have a whole other list of things that I wanted to talk to you about today. I'm sure for those listening, even though the show has gone over almost 15 minutes over what my normal interview is, I have no doubt that people don't realize it because this time has just flown. It's gone by. Is there anything you want to add? Is there any last thing that you want to say that what should I have asked you that I didn't or anything? I, I don't want. I feel like it's more a message of empowerment to patients out there. Like, don't lose hope. Don't think of yourself as being 
permanently broken like I did. You know, I felt like that was such a disheartening place to be in. Don't accept answers if they don't if they don't fit what you know to be true. Know that you are the expert in your body and that we as healthcare practitioners are just there to support you in your journey. And so I really really always want to give that strong message of self-advocacy. And so if you're not getting answers in one place, go somewhere else. You know, don't just, you know, accept these non-answers that you might be given and don't think that you're beyond repair. Just keep on persisting and fight for yourself because you're worth it. A person hires a doctor, the doctor is working for them. Yes, yes. They're not there to report to the doctor, they're there for the doctor to work for them and serve them. So it's wonderful words, so inspirational. Thank you. Thank Thank you you. for this fabulous interview and for all the good work that you're doing for the world, really. You know, it spreads. It's It's my pleasure. I love it. I feel like SED changed my life. It's changed so many other people's lives who I've then worked with. And I just, I feel honored to be in this position. So thank you so much for having me today. We'll see you again soon. We'll have a lot of fun with those questions and answers. Thank you so much, Lee. I look forward to it. Take care. You too. Bye. Everyone, thank you so much for being here today. And thanks again to Dr. Bowen for a wonderful interview. I hope that all of you are enjoying the show and that you're getting some good information out of it. If you are, I hope you'll spread the word. And not just to people that you know that follow the specific carbohydrate diet, but to those who might need it. Even if they just learn a little or it puts them one small step in the right direction, this podcast will be worthwhile. I look forward to hearing your feedback. You're always welcome to write to me. And of course, now it's up to you to write with your questions for Dr. Bowen. You can send them to Lee Bernstein at scd4me.com, L-E-E-B-E-R-N-S-T-E-I-N at scdforme.com. If you do get a bounce back at that address, today is the 21st of July, and this will air on or about the 29th of July, 2020. Hopefully, it'll all be resolved by then, but I've been getting some bounce backs. People have been complaining about it. I'm working on it. If that happens to you, you can also reach me at LeeBernstein at Yahoo.com, or you can go to the Facebook page, the SCD Specific Carbohydrate Diet podcast on Facebook. I'm going to ask that everyone please get their questions in no later than August 12th. That should give you plenty of time. The sooner the better. Also a reminder, everything will be asked confidentially, anonymously, and I never ever share your email information with anyone for any reason. I look forward to seeing you here again. Thank you so much for being here, for supporting the show. If you go to my webpage at scd4me.com, you'll see that I've put up some associate links to Amazon products, both books and SCD-compliant products that can help you follow the program. Those are links that help support the show. Podcasting is not free for me, and uh, while I'm working on getting advertisers, I also appreciate any support that I can get from the SCD community. So if you go there and you click on a link and you purchase something, I do get a little bit of that sale without any extra cost to you, and that is deeply appreciated. 
In the meantime, I hope you stay safe, stay well. See you on the next show. Take care.